0: All right, you can take your Bibles, and I will get mine, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18. This is not a message that any pastor enjoys preaching, but uh, to fulfill preaching the whole counsel of God, we have to preach even the hard stuff. And there are some times when messages are spurred or necessary because of circumstances, and this is one of those. And as I talk about biblical discipline in Matthew 18 and what the Bible says to ha- has to say about it, we always look at this and you have to understand what God says about church discipline, and then you hope that you never have to practice it. Um, but it's good for us to understand what God says so that in the case that it becomes necessary, then we all are on the same page. But one of the greatest criticisms of the church is this, is that it's full of hypocrites. And pertaining to leadership, it's very strong criticism because the biggest, one of the biggest criticisms is that the leaders of churches pick their pet peeve sins that they talk about and then ignore the rest. And therefore, it allows hypocrisy to run rampant in the church. And I think generally as Christians, we each have a tendency to do that. We have those pet peeve sins that you know we can't stand, we get righteously indignant about. And yet there's others that we just care to overlook because either we don't want to deal with them or because it's not something that we're necessarily concerned about or it doesn't involve me. And so we just go our way and overlook them. And Paul rebuked the church at Corinth. If you read through the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians specifically, in chapter 5, Paul came down hard on the church at Corinth because they did that exact thing. They overlooked a very grave sin in their midst, and then they were proud of the fact that they could tolerate because of their spiritual maturity. And Paul said, no, you've completely missed the point. You can't tolerate sin in your midst of any kind like this. Because it destroys the church from within. And it destroys the picture of the church that God wants it to be. So when we look at the criticism against the church and we apply it directly to church discipline, it it is true, we're guilty. Church discipline is many times not administered when it should be, or it's administered too often and too harshly in some cases, but that's the rare thing. It's very rarely administered the way God says that it should be done. Or in some churches, it's only administered to the sins that the elders or the pastor think are important. And we have to be consistent. And so church discipline, again, is not something anybody wants to do. Why? I mean, you think about it, and of course we don't want to be confrontational with people. I mean, that, that, that deters a lot of it. No one wants to have to confront somebody in sin. We don't want to endure the lashback that may come back as a result of it now there's a i'm going to give you a humorous story but it illustrates the point back when russia was a communist regime there was a joke that went around about boris the russian and boris the russian arrived in heaven and saint peter welcomed him at the gate and saint peter was showing him around and he basically said okay you can go anywhere that you want in heaven except for those pink clouds right there and boris got this confused look he said well I don't understand, why not the pink clouds? Peter said, well, those clouds are reserved for people who did great things on the earth. And Boris said, well, I've done something great. Peter looked at him and said, what have you done? He said, well, I stood in front of the Kremlin and made a speech confronting the government and all the corrupt politicians that were inside. And St. Peter said, when did you do that? And Boris said, about two minutes ago. That's why I'm here. The point is, church discipline or confronting sin does not always work out well for the one that's trying to do it. That should not deter us from obeying Scripture. The problem is, I think the root of the problem is that we don't have the same opinion of sin that God does. And so we tend to overlook the severity of what sin is and what it can do not just in a Christian's life, but in the body of Christ as a whole. So church discipline is commanded by God as something that must be done in circumstances that it is necessary. And so we have to be faithful. We have to be faithful in carrying out discipline when necessary. Again, it's not something that you take lightly. It's not something we want to do. But because God commands it in certain circumstances, we must do it. So the question is, why do we need to carry it out? We're going to get to Matthew 18. I'm going to, We're going to go there right now. So if you're in Matthew 18, I lost my place, so I'm going to get back there. And Matthew 18 is Jesus' commands to the disciple about how to carry this out. And we're going to look at this passage. I'm going to break it down for you because there's steps here. Before we really get into this, I'm going to give you what other scriptures tell us about church discipline and how it should be carried out. But we're going to start here in Matthew 18. We're going to go down to verse 15. And Jesus, this is Jesus speaking, by the way. This is his words. He says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses... Every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven." For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We're going to take a minute and pray, and then we'll look further into this passage and the Word of God and see what the Bible says about church discipline. Lord, we just pray for your presence now. Lord, we need your help. We need your Spirit to guide us as we look into your Word today. Father, this is not an easy topic to discuss or to learn about or or to practice for that matter. And so, Lord, we just need you more than ever to help us to follow your way, to understand your truth. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be with us today. I pray that your presence would be known among us, that your word would have strength and power that comes from you. Lord, I pray that you would give me strength, give me the words to say, not my opinion, but what your word says. I pray that your truth would be spoken today so that we might all be challenged and learn from it. And Lord, may your name be uplifted and exalted as we seek to follow your word, as we seek to glorify you in our lives and during this time. We'll give you the glory and praise. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first question is, why do we need to carry out church discipline? And right from this passage, Christ makes it very clearly that this is a command. Okay, It's not an option. It's not something... We have the choice to do. It's a command. If you keep your finger there and turn over to 1 Corinthians 5, we're going to stick mainly in the New Testament today because we're talking about the operation of the New Testament church. But in 1 Corinthians 5, I mentioned this already, this is Paul's letter to Corinth when they were immersed in a multitude of sins. But if you go to chapter 5, verse 11, Paul says this, "But now I have written unto you not to keep company. if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one, know not to eat." This is at the end of his discourse about what to do with a brother who's living out of God's will, living in open sin, basically. but this is a command. He says, "I have written to you not to keep company. This is the end result of where this sin leads. But God commands um, church discipline when it's necessary, so we can't ignore it. The reason God commands it is, one of the reasons, is to maintain purity in the church. If you're still in 1 Corinthians 5 and you go back up to verses 6 and 7, Paul says this, your glorying is not good. Again, speaking about the Corinthian church glorying in the fact that they could tolerate open sin, and the sin that was being committed here was adultery, open adultery. Uh, There was a man living with his mother-in-law, and... But he says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So Paul's basically saying if you leave sin in the church, it's going to pervade. It's going to spread. It's not going to remain in one spot because God likens sin to leaven many times in the Bible. And he says, all it takes is one drop. It's one little part. And that will spread throughout the whole body and destroy and corrupt the whole body. So we have to do it in order to maintain purity of the church. And part of that is maintaining our testimony in the world. The church is supposed to be God, a picture of God and God's body, Christ's body, to the world. When we tolerate sin, when we let open sin continue in the church, basically what we're saying to the world is that sin really doesn't matter and God's not that concerned about it. We can, we're fine with sin in our body, and therefore that makes us just like the world. So the testimony of the Church of God and the body of Christ is at stake if we don't carry this out when it's necessary. And then finally, the, the all obvious reason is to show, show lo, I'm sorry, to show love one to another. And you say, well, how is church discipline showing love? We read that this morning in Hebrews chapter 12. The Bible says that God chastises those he loves. Because just as a father chastises his children, we discipline our children and correct them when they do wrong things so that they'll grow up living in the truth and understanding the truth that God wants them to live in. And so God chastises his children. We are his representatives on this earth and so it's, God has commanded us, it's not just up to us, but God has commanded us to carry out that correction when necessary. Um, Because we love each other. God chastises us not because he's angry, not because um, you know, he's embarrassed. It's because he loves us and he wants the best for us. And if he lets sin reign in our body, if he lets sin stay there without any type of corrupt, corruption, uh, correction, that's not good for us. And he knows that. And so he gives the same command to the church. If you know that there's sin in the church and you don't deal with it, that's not good for you. He loves us. He wants us to be chastised for our own good. And therefore, in in carrying out church discipline, we're actually showing the love of God in carrying out his correction the way that he wants us to. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, we started there. I want you to go back there. He says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And then the result is this. If he shall hear thee, then you have gained your brother. The word "gain" there, Paul uses, or Christ uses, is actually a Greek word that has the connotation of value. It's a financial word. Okay, the, the word is "kardiano." It's a word often used to speak of financial gain. So what Christ is saying is, in gaining your brother back, there's value that you've just brought back into your life and his life. Now, it's interesting when you read Scripture. If you read the context around it, sometimes it makes what you're reading make all that more sense. The value that Christ put on restoring a wayward brother is shown in the very passage just before this. If you jump up to verse 10, he says, Take heed, I'm sorry, I'm in, yes, take heed that you despise not these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of. Of my Father, which is in heaven, for the Son of Man is come to save that which is lost. There's Christ's purpose. Now look at the parable that He gives. How think ye, if a man have an hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more than of, this, of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So he sets the stage with this story about the lost sheep. The one out of the hundred, the, the, the shepherd will leave the rest and go because there's value in restoring one sheep. And then he gives the application in the next several verses. And so it's, it's a way that we show love to each other when we restore each other, and that's the goal When we restore each other, if we have to get to church discipline and carry it out the way that God intends us to. If we don't address sin, we literally are lacking in showing God's love to a person and to another believer. So it it really comes down to, do we love the brother? And if we truly love that brother, then our goal then is not to just chastise them and excommunicate them and have nothing to do with them. Our goal is that this correction will restore them to fellowship. Because we love them. That's exactly what God's purpose was. That's what, why Christ came to earth. We were all wayward sinners. And God exercised church discipline in a massive sense because we're exiled from Him because of our rebellion. And yet Christ paved the way for that to be reconciled. And all we have to do is what? Repent, confess our sins, and ask for forgiveness. That's trusting in Christ's blood to save us. So you see the picture of Christ dying on the cross and the picture of Christ as our shepherd is the exact picture that God's trying to show through church discipline when it's exercised correctly. So here's the question then. We know why we do it, but what qualifies then under church discipline? Now, I'm going to tell you, in studying this out, and I spent a long time looking at different churches. I looked at church constitutions and what they said, and I looked at Scripture very deeply. And there was such a variety of stuff that it was unbelievable. And I I don't know that there is a consensus. Okay? I'm going to try to keep it very simple. Because the sins that I think God qualifies as sins that we need to address, and this is not an exhaustive list. You'd have to look at each situation uh, individually. But they come under basically three categories. I'm going to give you those three categories, and then I'm going to give you some specific examples from Scripture. So the sins that qualify for church discipline would be this. Number one, those sins that are public disobedience to Scripture. Again, because it has the testimony of the church at stake, if there is a very public, ongoing sin that is not dealt with, then it mars the testimony of God's church. So the first one is those sins that are public disobedience to Scripture. Number two, it goes along with that, those sins that harm the testimony of the church to the world. So they kind of intersect. Number three are those sins that cause division within the church. Christ said, a house that is divided cannot stand. And I really believe, I'm expressing my opinion a little bit here, but I really believe that is one of the the biggest problems in the church today is that churches are so divided about things that there's no unity in order to really get together to fulfill God's purpose. People are divided about the stupidest things, you know, the color of the carpet. And I'm not, I mean, that sounds silly, but there are churches, literally, that people have left because they built a new building and put the wrong color carpet in. Okay? That's how petty things get. But anything that can cause division, that drives wedges between church members or churches for that matter, okay, that, that's a serious crime in God's book. Because as we, when we studied Ephesians, we saw the Spirit of God, because we're all part of His body, has already created unity. It's our job to maintain that unity. When someone comes and tries to divide the church, that is literally trying to undo what God has put together. I mean, you, you think about divorce. That is what happens in a church. Okay, It's splitting apart a body It's tearing apart what God has has built in unity. So those are the categories. Public disobedience to Scripture, those that harm the testimony of the church to the world, and those that cause division within the church. Now let me take you to 1 Corinthians 5 again. This is one example. And I already mentioned this, but I wanted to talk about, just touch on this very quickly. Here's a specific example. Verse 11 again. But I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator... Okay, so any kind of sexual sin that's, that's known, a covetous or an idolater or a railer, that's one, somebody who just likes to cause arguments and yell and, and cause distri- uh, strife between people, or a drunkard or extortioner. Extortioner is one who tries to get things from people by forcing them into situations in which they can't defend themselves. That's a simple explanation, there's more to it than that, but it's, it's trying to get gain in ill ways that hurt other people, okay? And then he says, with such one know not to eat. So there's a a beginning list to start with that Paul outlines. And he says specifically, here's the kind of people that you can't just let sit in your church. You have to deal with these sins, all right? If you will go over to Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1. Galatians also deals with church discipline. We're going to touch on this and spend a little more time here in just a minute. But in Galatians chapter 1, verse 7, here again, Paul says, here's somebody you have to deal with as far as church discipline. He says, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. This would be any kind of false teacher. You, this is elaborated in First Peter, and if you want to go study the, the passages in First Peter that have to do with false teachers, false teaching is absolutely something that has to be dealt with. It, it cannot be let just go rampant in the, in the church. And then finally, if you go back to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. This again is Paul addressing the church at Rome this time. And in verse 17, in the last chapter of Romans, he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. All right, so here's that divisive spirit. And it could be over doctrine, it could be over petty things. Okay, But it's the idea of someone who causes division in the church. Okay. So there's a short list. While we're on this, I want you to go back to, to the Old Testament and Proverbs very quickly. This is a familiar passage And you'll recognize it once we get there. But if you go to Proverbs chapter 6. Verse 16. And this is Solomon, by the way. The wisest man that God has ever inspired to write anything down for him. And he says in verse 16 of chapter 6 of Proverbs. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Now, In the Hebrew, what he's saying is, I'm going to give you six things in a list that God hates. But the last one is an absolute abomination, so it's worse than all the others. Now look at the list. And here's sins that have to be dealt with according to God. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies. There's your sixth that God hates, and now the seventh that God absolutely calls an abomination. He that sows discord among the brethren. So you see what God calls serious sins that have to be dealt with in the church. Okay? So I'm not going to elaborate on that again. This is not an exhaustive list. Each situation has to be looked at individually and prayed over and, got, and seeking God wisdom in those, but those are, are blatant, obvious sins that, that both are addressed in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Now, you, you say, okay, well, what about the verse in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, it says, love covers a multitude of sins. You know, if we love people, we don't have to approach them in their sin. Here, we're, we're going to get into this in just a minute, but let me give you the basic premise of that chapter and that verse, okay? If somebody offends you personally, They hurt your feelings or say something nasty about you or take something from you even. And they cause strife or grief in your life. So it's a personal attack. What would be Christ's response if he were the one receiving that? Let me rephrase that. What was Christ's response when he did receive that? He forgave. Okay? When we look at 1 Peter... And people will bring this up and say, no, you don't have to do church discipline because love overlooks sin. No, love overlooks a personal offense to me because through the grace of God, I in love can forgive them and I don't need to seek retribution. So if it's a a personal attack, if it's a personal offense or whatever to me, God can forgive, I can forgive, let's move on, okay? It's not a big deal. You know, it's, a, it's about Christian liberty that I don't have to seek that revenge. It's about personal or Christian love that I don't want to seek revenge because I want that person to be restored to, to a right relationship with me. So when we talk about love covering a multitude of sins, we're talking about, yes, if we love somebody, we can ignore a personal offense to me or sins against me personally. But we've already shown that if it's an offense against God's church, if it's a public offense that mars the testimony of God in heaven and the body of Christ, you can't just overlook it. So there's a difference here. We don't talk about, we don't institute church discipline if somebody comes to the pastor and goes, well, he said this about me and I don't like it. Or he took this and didn't give it back. Okay, those are petty offenses that you can work out. And, and, and literally, Matthew 18, Christ addressed that. He said, if you, if you have offense against a brother, or if somebody's committed a sin against you, you go to them by yourself and work it out. And if you can work it out and they repent, then you've gained a brother. You've won him. You've brought value to both of your lives. Okay? So when we look at what sins qualify, again, as something that needs to be dealt with under church discipline, it's not these personal petty offenses. Okay? It is something that is public that mars the testimony of the church. And so we have to be very careful when we talk about what we need to institute church discipline for. Uh, because we have to go by Scripture. Um, but there are times when sin in the camp demands confrontation and a call to repentance. So the question is, okay, there is a sin. What if what if there is something that comes up? What if it's a very public, what, blatant, you know, like, like in Corinthians, fornication, a man openly living with his mother-in-law. Okay, that was, I, I don't think there's a question about that. If you read the Bible, all you have to do is get to the Ten Commandments. And it's pretty clear there. All right. Well, in looking at those things, I'm not going to give you the steps yet. We'll look at that in just a minute. I want to give you the attitude and the approach first. Because it doesn't matter if we try to go through the steps. If our attitude and approach is wrong, then we're going to destroy the church even more by, by trying to practice church discipline in our own might, in our own strength, in my own wisdom. And if I do it with the attitude of retribution, retaliation, I'm going to get this person back because they hurt my church or whatever, or they hurt me. Okay, that's the wrong attitude. That's just going to cause further division in the church of God. So we need to look at the attitude that carry that we need to approach this with. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Again, Paul dressing the church at Corinth. By the way, 2 Corinthians was written after the church at Corinth had I guess dealt with is the best way to put it a lot of the problems that Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians. They've got a lot of straight, things straightened out by now. all right. And specifically, they've dealt with this man who was living in open sin. They're, they're dealing with false teachers the correct way at this point, and Paul is commending them but also giving them some advice. So if you go to chapter 2, verse 8 in 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, verse 5, he says, But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all, Sufficient to such a man as this punishment for which was inflicted of many. I'm going to stop there for just a second. What Paul's saying is this. The, the hurt that this man brought on the church of God, yeah, it hurt me, but my life is not over. Okay, I, I'm, going to get, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to get over this. I've forgiven him. God has forgiven him. He's repented. And then he says, sufficient, in verse 6, sufficient to such a man is this punishment. He was talking about the the putting out of fellowship that he recommended in 1 Corinthians. And he says, this is sufficient. And it has brought this man to repentance. So look at verse 7 and 8. He says, so that contrarywise, ye ought to rather forgive him. Now here's the goal of church discipline. To get to forgiveness and restoration. When I talked about approaching it with love, Our goal is to come with the idea of restoring somebody in love to be ready to forgive them when they repent and restore them to fellowship. Okay? So we have to approach church discipline in love with the goal of restoration. If it's any other purpose, then we're outside of God's plan. If we're mad, if we're angry, if we don't want them around anymore, if they're just messy and high maintenance and we just don't want to deal with them, that's the wrong approach. The goal is... This is a child of God. We love them. We want them to be restored to fellowship with us and with God. And so as soon as they repent and come and ask forgiveness, I am ready to forgive. And when we forgive, we put it behind us and move forward. And that's what Paul's saying here. Verse 8, Wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. So I can't stress how important The attitude of love and carrying this out in love is, and for the purpose that you're trying to attain, it's not punishment, okay? It's correction. Correction is given because of love. Punishment is given in judgment. So our attitude toward this is we have to come up and approach this person and approach the process in love with the goal of restoration, Uh, In Galatians chapter 6, I already mentioned this, this is a warning, it's a command and a warning. In verse 1, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says this, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, okay, so we know the situation, he says this, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Now, Paul says a lot in those two phrases. If all he said was, ye which are spiritual, there'd be a whole bunch of people in the church going, Well, I'm the spiritual giant. I'm the spiritual leader here. I'm much more spiritual than those people. Okay? He just contradicted the second paragraph or the second phrase that Paul gives us. He says, You which are spiritual, restore them in meekness. In other words, approach this in humility because you are no better than the person you're trying to correct. By the grace of God, you've been able to avoid this public sin, but none of us is absolutely innocent. We're all sinners. And the attitude is, I'm going to take this very carefully. I am not going to approach this person because I'm better than them. I come to them in humility because I could be the next one on the receiving end. Any one of us can fall at any minute. All we have to do is take our eyes off God and start doing things our own way. And that's why that's why Paul says to him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. It's a warning. Nobody is above sin. And so when we come to God, when we come to a person who is out of out of uh, communion and out of fellowship and in sin, we come to them with the understanding: you know what? I'm a sinner as well. But by God's grace, God has spared me from this or from other sins. And therefore, I'm not coming because I'm better than you, and you need to be like me. I'm coming because, again, I love you. And in love, I want to restore fellowship between us and between you and God. David in the Psalms, in Psalm 16, he says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Anybody who's living in sin that's not confessed, that it's not forgiven, therefore they cannot have fellowship with God in prayer, in worship, in anything. And if they can't have fellowship with God, they can't have fellowship with other believers. So it's it carried out with love, it's carried out with humility, and then it's carried out in a spirit of gentleness but firmness. Now look at verse, six, uh, verse 1 in Galatians 6 again. He says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such in one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And verse 2 says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. All right, The idea here is carrying, you're carrying. You're literally carrying them to a place of restoration. But we cannot overlook sin. Second Timothy verse, uh, chapter two, verse 25. Paul talks about correcting the opponents, or to- talking about correcting the false teachers, and he says, "You correct them." With gentleness. In other words, you don't strike them with words. You don't come at them and beat them down with your voice and with the words that you use. That's not the goal. The goal is use a spirit of humility and gentleness and truth to correct somebody who's in sin. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Paul directs Timothy as far as correcting an elder. And he talks about not sharply rebuking an elder elder, an older elder, okay? Uh, And then he addresses the younger ones. He says, yeah, and the younger brothers, you need to treat, or the younger elders, you need to treat them as brothers. So there's still this idea of gentleness, but firmness, okay? So there's gentleness, but you cannot let the person rationalize their sin away or minimize their sin or shift the blame. The idea is you're confronting them with sin in a spirit of meekness because it's wrong. You want to restore them, but you cannot just overlook it. And so you can't let them just rationalize or explain it away. The Bible is the guide. The Bible is how we approach this. And what God's Word said is the standard. If they're not following this, it doesn't matter what they say. They're still wrong. Okay, so you must be gentle, but you must be firm. Now if you go back to Matthew 18, I'm going to take a few minutes and we're going to look at the process, okay? We've gone through why, we've gone through with what spirit, we've gone through the sins that we need to look at when this is... Uh, necessary. Now I'm going to go through the specific process. So in Matthew 18, we're going to start at verse 15. Step one, here we go, I'm going to go over the four steps. Step one, Jesus says this, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. So how many people are involved here? One, you and the sinner. That's it. You and the sinner. Now here's something people in churches don't understand church discipline is not to be initiated by a committee okay if you see someone outwardly publicly sinning or doing something that causes offense and division within the church and I'm not talking again about this personal offense okay well even in this case yes the personal offense would be go to his your brother if you got something against him don't go tell everybody else If you've got something against him, you go to him alone. That is what Christ said. And by the way, this isn't Paul, this isn't John, this isn't Peter. This is Jesus Christ saying these words. Okay? So he says, number one, or step one, go to him alone. So discipline is not to be initiated by a committee. And the idea is, if you can go to them and entreat them in love, showing them the truth of God's word and how they're wrong, and they repent, the issue is over. That's where forgiveness is granted, and it's done. You've won a brother. It doesn't need to go any farther. You don't need to proclaim their sin to everybody else so everybody else knows what's going on in their life. You go to them. You entreat them to repent. They repent. You forgive them. You're restored. End of story. And life moves on. There's no reason to involve other people. Okay? The verb translated go, when Christ says go, is... is I'm going to give you the grammar in in Greek lesson here. It's a present imperative. That means that this is a command and not a suggestion. So, what Christ is saying is this Verily, I'm sorry, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, by the way, let me just put this note in here. The King James Version says against thee. If you've got an ESV or possibly an NASV or maybe the NIV, I didn't check the NIV. It may not have these words against thee. The against thee was not in the older manuscripts. The against the phrase was added in the newer, more recent manuscripts, probably as an explanation by some of the scribes who translated it. Anyway, the idea is this. It's not limited to something that's, ca- that's done against you personally. Of course, if you're offended personally or if they sin against you personally, go to them and get things right. But this is if a man sins. If you see that a man has sinned, you go to them. The word go... It's not, well, you know, you could. It's an option. It's something you might consider. Christ is saying, if you see someone in sin, it is your responsibility and obligation to go and make things right. And if you don't, you're sinning because it's a direct command of Christ. So this is not something that is an option or suggested. It must be done. And I think this is where we don't put the weight on God's truth and God's commands as much as God does. We look at it and we go, well, you know, it's inconvenient. No, you know, it's not a big thing. I don't worry about it. It's God says, if you see someone in sin, go. End of story. There's no options. There's no excuses. There's no other reasons to, to, to talk about it. It's our obligation as the church of Christ, each individually, to maintain unity in the church of Christ. And therefore, if we... I see someone sinning, it's my responsibility before God to go and try to make things right with them. And if they repent, Christ says, You've done it. That's all that's necessary. You've restored a brother. So he starts by giving us the command you individually go. So the first step of discipline result, if the first step of discipline result is in repentance, that's the end of the process. <clears throat> that's as far as we go. Now, why does it never or hardly ever come to this? Because people won't take the responsibility to go. And I've seen it over and over in churches. It hasn't happened here necessarily, but I've seen it in churches that I've been in and in other churches of pastors that I've talked to where there's something that happens, a person sees somebody in sin or gets offended by somebody else, and immediately they go to the elder board and they've got to proclaim it to the whole church how this person hurt them. That is anti-biblical. And that is a sin. Now, I get riled up, and I apologize if I'm getting excited here. I promise I won't jump over the pulpit. okay? But the fact of the matter is, we need to read the Bible and understand what God says is important and then make that important to us. And the church would be a whole lot better off if we just did that instead of trying to do things our own way. So, step one, go one-on-one. On one. Go alone. Make it right with your brother. Step two, he goes in verse 16, he says, now, but if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Now, let me explain that verse. What he's basically saying is, okay, you're going to repeat this process. If the person rejects you, won't repent, and won't acknowledge the sin, then you go and find some other people, and go with to go with you, and again entreat them to repent. Now, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, uh, Christ is not talking about people who have witnessed the sin. Okay, The word witness here is is uh, someone who can corroborate that you are following the process. So this is basically backing you up, that you are on God's side and you are doing it God's way. That way, if they come back to the church and say, oh, they did this, they did... No, we had two or three witnesses right there. They can tell you what happened. They can tell you what was said. They can tell you what, what took place. Okay? So that's the two or three witnesses. Um, so this happens. This is the second step. If the brother refuses the initial one-on-one meeting and repentance, then you take two or three witnesses. And you take two or three other believers, by the way. They have to be believers because church discipline is for the church, It's not unsafe people. It's not outside judges. Uh, Jesus addressed that. He said, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said basically the the church takes care of the, the stuff within the church. It's not our job to fix everybody out there. That's what the court system's for. Okay? But since we are the church, the court system doesn't need to get involved in our issues. Now, he says, so the presence of one or two others serves two main purposes. And here's why you take two or three witnesses. First, it turns up the pressure. If you were this sinning person, and I came to you and you just blew it off, yeah, big deal, you know, I don't think it's wrong, whatever. Okay, now I come back to you with two or three people from the church. And they, I, they, they know what's going on. And now three or four of us are entreating you to repent from this sin. All of a sudden, now there's this sense of, Okay, it's not just his opinion anymore. Now this is building a consensus of the church of God. We're representing Christ Jesus in doing this, and now we have more people involved. So it really starts to put the pressure on the person. You know what? Maybe I am sinning. Maybe I need to think about this and pray about this. Maybe I do need to confess and repent. So we, we come with two or three witnesses. We repeat again in love, entreating them to repent and ask for forgiveness. But this time it's done in the presence of two witnesses uh, in order to put the pressure on them. <clears throat> Number two reason for bringing them is so that they serve as witnesses, again, as I said, to what you have done. They can corroborate or they can testify to the fact that you are following the biblical principle. You didn't go in there and scream and yell at this person you know, and browbeat them with the Bible. You approached them in a spirit of humility. You approached them with the goal of restoration. That's what the two or three witnesses are for. Now, it's, of course, it's true that if the offender denies that the offense occurred, this goes back to an Old Testament principle. So if I go to somebody and they deny that they're sinning, now I go get two or three witnesses. They come with me, and I say the same thing. I entreat them to repent, and they, again, deny that they're sinning. Okay, now the two or three witnesses have heard my story. They've heard that story. Now it's up to them to decide, okay, is there really a sin being committed? Maybe I was personally offended by something that really wasn't a sin. It was just a matter of preference or or my opinion. Because those two or three witnesses are there, now they can make a judgment and say, you know what? We really don't see a sin in this. He wore blue pants on Sunday and the pastor doesn't like that. That's not a sin. Okay? Okay. I know that's ridiculous, but again, that's where this goes sometimes, to to trivial stuff like that. That's what the witnesses are for. These are godly people, not that will be on the person's side. These are godly people that will be on God's side to make sure this is carried out correctly. So the two or three witnesses are there in order to help determine, is there really being a sin committed here? Now, with all of that, let's assume... That the offender repents. There is a sin. These people all entreat him. What happens now? They grant forgiveness and the matter is dropped. It goes no further. So each step along the way what Christ is saying is this. Your goal is restoration. The first one you go by yourself you want to restore him. He doesn't listen. So you go to get your two or three witnesses you bring them back. I'm sorry it's one or two witnesses. I keep saying two or three because it's three people. Okay, One or two witnesses, you bring them back and they repent. Forgiveness is granted and the person is restored. End of matter. Let let me say something about forgiveness here because too many church people are, are guilty of this. I'm not saying us, I'm just saying church people in general. When you forgive somebody You're not telling them that you've dismissed their sin, okay? What you're telling them is this. I understand that your sin, because you've repented and forsaken this sin, is covered by the blood of Christ, and God has forgiven it. And when God forgives it, he casts it into the sea. He removes it from us as far as the east is from the west, that's what happens when i forgive somebody so when we forgive and we're talking about these offenses here when we forgive somebody we don't go okay well you can come back to church but we're going to have to tell everybody what you did christ says no forgiveness what, uh, ephesians, uh, ephesians ephesians 432 be kind one to another tender hearted what forgiving one another and how should we forgive them even as god for christ's sake hath forgiven us So when we forgive somebody, literally what we're saying is, I am going to take this sin that God has already forgiven and put it away forever. Now, if we go and they repent, and then we reach back and we grab this sin sometime down the road and shake it in their face and say, yeah, but you did this. Literally, what we're saying to people is this, or to God, really, God... I don't see how you can forgive this sin because I can't let go of it. Therefore, I'm going to drag it out of the pit of hell. I'm going to shake it in your face and say, God, this person deserves to suffer because I think they haven't gotten what they deserved yet. When God has already forgiven them. You see how important forgiveness is in this process. And we must do it God's way. So again, the goal is is forgiveness and restoration. Now, let's assume the offender does not dispute the accusation itself. Yes, it's a sin. The the two or three people corroborate that, and he still refuses to repent. Then we have witnesses. Now, those witnesses with the original person goes back to the church. And this is step three. If the offender still refuses to repent, Jesus' instructions are very clear. In verse 17, he says, If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. So, if you take your witnesses, that goes nowhere. He still rejects it. Now you bring it to the church. And when, you ta- when he's talking about the church, he's talking about the leadership of the church and the elders. To this point, there's not necessarily a need to involve elders of the church or the leadership. Now, if you don't have, we don't have a large church. Generally, you're looking for somebody who you look at as a spiritual person, like Ephesians, or Galatians 6.1 says, you who are spiritual, restore those who have fallen. Okay, So you want somebody who's mature spiritually, who will follow the Bible in doing this, and who will approach the person in love. If you need an elder, fine. But you don't have to have the elders involved to this point. Now, when Christ says, go to the church, now the elders get involved. Now the leadership is involved, and the leadership has the responsibility to, to proclaim this sin and the unrepentance of this person to the entire church. Now, what happens after that? Well, look at look at what Christ says in verse 17. If you should neglect to hear them, tell it to the church, but if you neglect to hear the church... So what's implied here is that Christ is saying in step three is when the church understands what's going on, now it's up to the church to do the same thing that's been done twice. We're going to turn the heat up one more notch, and now it's not two or three, now it's the entire congregation in treating this person in love to repent so that they can be restored to fellowship with God and fellowship with the church. All right? There, there's really not a lot you have to explain here. It's the same process over and over. You're just adding people to it with the same goal, with the same attitude. Okay? Now we've got the whole church involved, including the leaders. But you still approach the person in love, in meekness, in gentleness, and firmness, and treating them to to repent and and forsake the sin. So what we see here is this, not only is church discipline an individual duty, it is a corporate duty of the church as a whole. And that's why before anybody gets to the point of being put out of fellowship or the word in Greek is excommunicated, okay? I don't like that word, lots of people don't, but that's the biblical terminology, okay? But before we get there, It means the whole church must be brought into the process. No one's excluded. Now, this is where it gets uncomfortable because, you know, I don't want to do that. It's not that big of a deal. Can't we just overlook it? And and that's where things usually fall apart because now you have half the church that says, you know, this isn't necessary. And then you have another half of the church that's like, yes, we have to carry out God's word. And what do you end up with? A church split. Now, why did the church split? Because of the person's sin. And you say, well, they didn't cause a church. Yes, they did. If they hadn't done this in the first place, this process would not have been necessary. Okay? So yes, they are at least in fault to blame for a church split if the church is divided about how to carry out church discipline. If there is... A division or if there's a difference in the church congregation about applying church discipline that's when the church needs to come together in prayer and seeking God's word and both sides need to say in gentleness and in love and in a spirit of meekness this is what God's word says it's not well I think or my opinion is or I feel as soon as you go there you're into the realm of secular humanism and that's not the rule we follow in doing anything in the church we start with, this is what God's Word says. So how do we proceed from here? We cannot take one proof verse. But love covers a multitude of sins. No, that's called taking verses out of context. Okay, It's very clear all through Scripture and all through the New Testament how church discipline is, it needs to be carried out and why it needs to be carried out. So when you have a church split, the church needs to come together to make things right and to be reconciled. You cannot do this if the church is not in unity. The whole point is we're trying to restore unity. If this process ends up dividing the church, what have we accomplished? Nothing. Okay? So again, it's got to be done in a spirit of unity, in love for one another, but it has to be done biblically. So the goal, again, is restoration. We want him to repent. We want him to be restored to the church. Now, Christ says at the end of verse 17, but if he neglect to hear the church, and here's the end result, what if you go through all this process? You go alone. You go with a couple of witnesses. You go with the whole church, and the whole church is entreating him for him and praying for him, and he still refuses to repent. Then what? This is the part that nobody likes, and this is the part that nobody ever wishes to have to get to. But this is the part that is necessary when the refusal has been consistent. Christ says, This, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Literally, what Christ is saying is this if this person is going to continue living in sin in the face of all of this admonition and entreaty from the church of God in love, that pattern is a pattern of an unsafe person and therefore you treat them like an unsafe person now what does that mean this is the hard part okay and this is the part that really causes grief and and all kinds of sadness in the church what christ is saying and what paul says later on in 1 corinthians when i when i read 1 corinthians 5 he says this he is not to be considered a member of your church for fellowship. You literally, you you cannot have an unsaved person in the fellowship of the church, specifically communion. The person is not welcome to celebrate communion. Now, when people come in, we don't have a closed communion policy. When people come in, if they profess to be saved and I don't know that much about them, I'm going to take their word for it. They haven't shown anything contrary to being a believer, if they want to partake of communion with us, that's fine because this is the body of Christ. It doesn't matter what church you come from or where you live. If you proclaim the name of Christ as your Savior, then you belong to the body of Christ. But if someone who proclaims the name of Christ and says they're a Christian and then continues to live as a heathen, now it's the responsibility of the church to say, I'm sorry, we know, and God says, it's not our judgment, God says, you are living as an unsaved person. We have to treat you like an unsafe person. And therefore, you're not welcome to partake of communion with us. Now, this goes for any type of fellowship within the church. And this is where it gets hard. Barring somebody from communion is one thing, but saying, no, you know what? Anything that is a privilege or a blessing of being part of the body of Christ, and especially a local church, you are barred from. Because you're not a Christian, or at least you're not living like one. And this, Now, let me say this. There's a lot involved here, but again, what is the attitude? Well, we're going to shun you. We're not going to have anything to do with you. We're not going to talk to you. No, that's the wrong thing, okay? That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what Paul is saying. Because think about it. If we, in our hearts now, treat them as an unbeliever, what is our attitude toward unbelievers supposed to be? And treat them to repentance to come to Christ because we love them. The goal hasn't changed. When we put them out of fellowship, the goal is still restoration. All right, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to show you what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you look at verse 3. He says, for I, verily, for I verily, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. In other words, what Paul's saying is, I'm not there personally, but I know the sin that he's already done in the, in the church. He's continued to do it. He's been entreated. Therefore, my judgment against him or what I'm going to carry out as far as God's purpose for him, I've already decided, even though I'm not there personally. Now, verse 4, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ... This, this is important, by the way. That phrase is not thrown around lightly in Scripture. When you do something in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, that's serious business. That means heaven is involved here. So he says, "...in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus." That's serious business, folks. What Paul's saying here is this, and he was talking about what Christ prescribed for the church. He said, when you put somebody out of fellowship, when you basically tell them, no, you can no longer enjoy the privileges and blessings of being part of our, our church or the church of Christ, you are turning their physical life over to Satan so that that person can experience the full weight of consequences of sin in their life. And hopefully, the severity of what they go through will change their heart and bring them back to repentance. Now, I'm going to give you a story. It's not a story. It's what happened in our church in New Hampshire. We had a couple, a young couple that came into our church. I may have shared this with you before. We had a young couple. They've only been married a couple of months. They joined our church. They were trying to get active in the church. And all of a sudden, the husband started not coming over the course of several months, what the church found out was that he was having an affair, he was gone all the time, he had signed up for the military, was waiting to be shipped out to, to, to uh, basic training. In the course of that, he found this other woman and preferred her to his wife. I don't know who it was that initially found it out, but our church followed this process and, and I never knew about any of it until it came to the church. Okay. But the church followed this process. Eventually, it was brought to the church by the pastor. The pastor told us that he had gone to this man's, he had his own apartment by now, apart from his wife. He went to the man's apartment, knocked on the door. He knew the guy was home. The guy ignored him. He tried to talk to him through the door. He entreated him to repent. He had taken some of the people from the church who knew about it, went and talked to the man. He still wouldn't let him in. He wouldn't even talk to them. And then they brought it before the church. This happened over a matter of weeks. When he presented to the church, he said, I want us to pray for the next week. He said, I want us to just seek God. If you have contact with this person, don't berate him. You love him in Christ, but you beg him to repent and to get his life right. That didn't happen. And so I remember our pastor sobbing. And we had to institute church discipline. And he was put out of, out of the uh, fellowship of the church. He was shipped off to basic training that same week. And in the next few days, he started going through basic training. One of the exercises they do is called the dunk tank. Basically, you go underwater, you hold your breath, you tread water. It's basically to build up your resistance underwater. It's not dangerous. They have spotters that are there in case you start struggling. You know, They've done every, taken every precaution. This man drowned in the dunk tank. First time ever at this base that this had happened. The spotter said it was like he was alive for a minute and then he was gone. Now, when we talk about the seriousness of the effects of sin, this unfortunately is one of the options that God has to exercise when you put somebody out of fellowship. If they start to experience the severe effects physically in their body of sin, the stress, the turmoil, The scars that come because of the sin. The idea is hopefully that severe buffeting of Satan on their body will wake up their spirit so they realize I need to repent to get my life straightened out. If that doesn't happen, death is not out of the question for God. Nobody wanted to come to that. But that's God's option. But this is how severe, when we talk about putting somebody out of fellowship or excommunicating them, we're not shunning them. We're not pushing them away and saying, no, we don't want anything to do with you. What we're saying is you can't enjoy the fellowship because you're not acting like a believer. We still love you. We still are praying for you. We're still entreating for you to repent and come back to God. But at this point, we're giving your, your, your body and your life, your physical life to Satan so that that turmoil will wake your soul up and, and, and show you how important this is before God's eyes. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 15, after you put him out, he says, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. He's not an enemy. He's still a person who needs to experience the love and restoring power of God's forgiveness. But it can only come with repentance. Now, it's getting practical. If you keep reading in 1 Corinthians 5, again, verse 9 through 11, he says, I wrote to you an epistle, not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world." But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man is called a brother, be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such one not to eat. The direct reference is communion. The indirect reference is there's no fellowship with this person because they're living as a heathen. And so when you put somebody out of fellowship, there's no fellowship either inside the church or outside the church. That was Paul's recommendation. That's what Christ was inferring when he said, they're anathema. They're an unbeliever. You treat them as an unbeliever. The only communication you have with them is to beg them to come to repentance. You can't have fellowship with an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians tells us, there's no concord between Christ and Belial. If they're living for Satan, you cannot have them be part of your life as far as fellowship is concerned but it's always with the goal of repentance. Now, the, the, per, the, the words are harsh, and I know it sounds extreme, but that's the Bible, folks, and we can't walk away from that. Now, Paul characterizes in 1 Corinthians 5, he says the potential end result is the destruction of his flesh. I'm not so concerned about a person's body as I am about their soul. That's the idea. God doesn't care so much that we are happy with our physical life as we are holy in our spiritual life. Because it's not our body that's going to heaven. It's our soul. We will get a new body, a new holy body. So if it takes the destruction of the physical body and the physical life to restore somebody, so be it. But if they die in their sin, were they really saved in the first place, if this is the pattern of their life? Now, I can't make that judgment. Yes, this person is going to go to hell. That's not for me to decide. That's in God's hands. But that's a scary place to be when you let the almighty God of the universe look at your life as a sinner and say, okay, I'm going to let God decide. Because God is a righteous God. No sin can enter heaven. So obviously, we're striving for restoration But again, there's one other necessary reason for doing this, if you want to call it excommunication, it's the purity of the church. You cannot maintain sin within the fellowship of the church because it spreads like a leaven. So loving a sinner, and this is part of loving them, loving a sinner who, who refuses to repent is basically showing them that we're going to refuse, allow sin as a cancer to spread in their life and to spread in the church. Now, what is God's involvement? I'm going to very quickly close this up with the last verses 18 through 20. What is God's involvement? Now, these verses are often misunderstood, so I'm going to try to explain them. They are part of this context, church discipline. Verse 18 in Matthew 5, I'm sorry, Matthew 18, says, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What Christ is saying is not this. If you all decide that this person is in sin and you put them out of your church, then we'll go along with you. What did Christ pray in the model prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer? Thy will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. This is a reference to that. What he's saying is what you bind on earth, God has already bound. When you're carrying out God's will in church discipline, God has already bound this person in sin for the destruction of their flesh. You're just fulfilling it in a physical way. And when you forgive them and loose them from that bondage of sin so that they can be restored, God has already forgiven them and loosed them from that sin. So it's not that God's going to agree with us. Christ is saying, we 're agreeing with God in this process. The verb tense in the above quotation they're literal rendings it's not It's not you know up for interpretation here. What Christ is literally saying is, "When you lose somebody, God has already done that. If you bind somebody you're just fulfilling god's will and what he's already done in heaven okay so that's verse eighteen, verse nineteen is also misunderstood it says Again, I say to you that if two sh- or if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Most people will come to this verse and say, well, that means if we get together and pray as two people, God's going to give it to us. That's not the context. Now, I'm not saying there's not strength in numbers in prayer, okay? But this verse specifically is talking about church discipline. He says, when two of you, remember the witnesses, agree that this person is in sin and unrepentant, God has already put his stamp on that. You're just confirming God's will on earth. And then he says at the end of the verse, If you ask anything in my name, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. In other words, if you get to the point where you have to put them out of fellowship, God has already approved that process. Why would he tell us to do it otherwise? So we're just agreeing with God. That's verse 19. It means The word literally means to produce a sound together or to be in symphony. Okay? And so our actions on earth perfectly coincide with what God has already ordained in heaven. That's the word agree. So the verse in verse 19 does not mean that anytime you get two people to agree on something, then God is going to answer their prayer. That's not true. Okay? The two, here we go, the two are the two witnesses. If they agree then God has already bound us. Verse 20 reiterates a similar promise from Christ. He says, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Okay? Again, we talk about worship. Where two or th- Yes, Christ is in our midst as we worship Him. Christ is in our midst when we're out working. Okay? If we stop and pray, Christ is there. Christ is omnipresent. The Holy Spirit is in us. So Christ is always there. But this verse is not talking about that. It's talking about this process of church discipline. Again, where two or three witnesses are gathered in my name to fulfill this this process of church discipline, Christ is already there, he's already involved, he's already put his stamp on this, and we're just fulfilling his will. So three verses at the end of this discourse. And Christ is saying, it's not something to overlook. This is fulfilling God's will in heaven. And we must agree with him and how we do this, and why we do this. So, as we've seen throughout the church discipline process, again, I I can't say this enough. The goal is restoration and love. That's always the goal. When churches excommunicate somebody, and then they have nothing to do with them, and condemn them to hell, I'm sorry, that's unbiblical. Christ says, no, your whole purpose is to restore them in love. The goal is never abandoned through every step. Even when you put them out of fellowship, the goal is still restoration. And we do it in love. And if at any time this person repents, he is to be immediately restored, welcomed with love. And then literally the church will gather around him. And that's the bear ye one another's burdens. We lift him up to help carry him forward so that he can progress in his spiritual maturity. See, that's that's how church discipline works, folks. That's the command that God has given us. So while the process of church discipline can be painful and even heartbreaking, we have to remember that the purity of the church is a God-given priority. And that by following the pattern God gave us, we have confidence that He's working in us and through us to accomplish His will. It's not about us maintaining the purity of the church. It's about God's maintaining the purity of the church by using us as his instruments. And we have to be willing to do that. So I'm going to stop right there. Um, I've given you what the Bible talks about. There's much more in the Bible that regards this, but I wanted to touch on the, the, the obvious and the important parts of this. And it's pray to God that this will never have to be undertaken. Okay? But if it does, it's something that we have to follow Scripture on it's something that we have to be in unity about and we have to carry it out the way that God wants us to in a spirit of love, okay? All right, let's have a word of prayer and we'll close with our service with Him uh, in just a minute. Father, we just thank you again for your word and for the instruction that you've given it to, in, in it to us. As far as your church is concerned, Lord, and even in this area of church discipline, that's so difficult for us to carry out There's so much pain, there's so much grief involved with this, there's so much hurt. And yet, God, you've told us that this is your will for the person who will not repent. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful, not just to carry out the discipline, but to continue to seek out each other in love, to seek for restoration, for repentance, so that we can maintain the unity that you've built into your body already, so that you will be glorified, so that your testimony on this earth will not be marred. And that you will get the glory for everything that we do here. Lord, go with us now with your blessing. I pray that you would guide us in your truth. May your spirit be with us and strengthen us as we endeavor to do the things that you want us to do each day. And we'll praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.